Hello, and welcome to the Bristol History Podcast with me, Tom Brothwell. This week, it'll be a slightly different podcast. Rather than exploring a theme or prominent personality from Bristol's past, I'll be interviewing a writer who is presently very much still active. ACH Smith was born in Kew in 1935, but has spent over 50 years living and working in Bristol. ACH, or Anthony as I'll be calling him, has had a varied and illustrious career as a novelist, playwright, poet, memoirist, TV arts presenter, university lecturer and cricket writer. I met Anthony in his studio and, squeaky chair aside, we had an open and free-ranging chat about his life and work. I began by asking him about his early life in London. I'm, I'm a London boy. Um, went to Cambridge, did modern languages, um, but all the time knew that uh, writing was where I wanted to go. Mm. But it's not that easy to find your way to earning a living. You know, you can maybe write stuff and get it published here and there, but to make a living. Mm. Um, I started... I. I'd, I'd worked for the university newspaper there, and so I developed a taste for journalism. Mm, I see. And, and you, you went to Cambridge, but um, you, you went from a sort of grammar school. Yeah, I, was, I came yeah. from a, a very working class background. I was one of those beneficiaries of the Butler Education Act of 1944, which made it possible for kids like me from, you know, very ordinary. My, my dad was a clerk in a brewery. Mm. Um, made it possible for us if we were bright enough passing our exams to go to flashy universities like yeah. Cambridge. And did you find it, you find you were accepted at Cambridge or many people from similar yeah, backgrounds? Yeah, the college I went to, Corpus Christi, was 90% public school. And it took me a few weeks because, you know, these chaps not only talk differently, of course, they had different accents, but they just new stuff that was far beyond me about you know the way one lived one's life and so forth but I I didn't resent them in any way if I had done I had a friend doing the same course as me he was doing French and German I did French and Spanish uh, and he was from a very working class background in Lancashire mm. um, and he just couldn't stand them uh, he made it plain to me and anyone else who wanted to hear him that he thought all these stuck-up toffs, you know. Well, one or two of them were stuck-up toffs, but some of them were pretty good chaps. Mm. Um, and I got very... And I still am to this day. I'm still friendly with quite a few of them. So I just learned to fit in, you know. And, and did you know you wanted to be a, a writer, do you think, when you went yeah, to Yeah, I was a late developer in all the important things in life. And it wasn't until I was in the sixth form at school that I... All, more or less completely by accident, I suddenly found myself reading the love song of Geoffrey Prufrock by T.S. Eliot, and I thought, this is amazing. I didn't know such stuff could be written, you know. I, I mean, it was a complete shock to me. And immediately I thought, I want to know more about this, and I want to see if I can do some of it. And that got me going. I mean, I haven't written T.S. Eliot-type poetry, but, I mean, it got me into thinking in literary terms. Anthony recalls his first encounter with the work of T.S. Eliot in his memoir, Wordsmith. I quote, What I do remember vividly is this moment. In the school library, during a free period, I looked for any book by T.S. Eliot, only because I was intrigued and mystified by what my friends studying English were saying about him. 
they had Murder in the Cathedral as an A-level text. I found something, and it fell open and let me see the lines. I should have been a pair of ragged claws, scuttling across the floors of silent seas. My life had been changed in 16 words. If it hadn't been that, it would have been something else, but it was that. I had had no idea that such words could be written, such images offered. What they meant was obscure to me, but as I was later find out, old Eliot himself remarked that poetry communicates before it is understood. To write poetry was my ambition now, as I left the library. I was just thrilled by it, um, by what you can do with words, mm. put it very simply. That. Okay. So um, I went back to getting my degree in French and Spanish, and, you know, I love Cervantes. I think Don Quixote is a very great novel, but I can't write in Spanish or French. I mean, I knew I, I need. I, I'd stopped English at the end of, you know, I was about 15. I mean, I, I just did O-level in English. Mm. And, of course, all my friends at university who like me, were going to be writers. They were all doing English. I actually think, looking back on it, that I had an advantage because they were all really intimidated by the idea of writing in the same language and the same tradition as, you know, Shakespeare, of course, but, you know, all all the great names, George Eliot and uh, Eliot and... Mm -hmm. And I didn't have that. I wasn't in the shadow of Cervantes or Racine or Baudelaire or people like that. I knew their stuff and I liked their stuff. But I wasn't writing in their tradition. I was writing in another tradition about which I was pretty much ignorant. Mm. And it wasn't till much later on that by accident, really, I got a job with the Royal Shakespeare Company and suddenly learnt about Shakespeare and thought, my God, how have I lived all these years and not known anything about this guy? He's incredible. And of course, I, I know a lot about him now and a lot about other writers in English. Mm. But I'm a kind of self-taught English student. And so you, do you look back on that and think that you were, you know, really fortunate? People talk about um, upward social mobility and mm. things like that, don't mm. they, today? But it, it seems to me, and, and just, you know, reading about this in, in your memoir, that that's sort of very much the case. You, I think you talk about the fact that your your dad might, you felt that he didn't really know what you were getting into. No. Only that education was sort of a, a good thing yeah. if you could get it. I think yes. that's what you say. He, he was of that, that generation, and I've met other men of his generation who were similar. They, they, they didn't have the immense good fortune that people of my generation had, mm. thanks to that Butler Education Act of being able, if we were good enough at writing glib essays, really regurgitating stuff we'd read, but presenting it as though it's really fresh thought, you know. Um, we, had, we had the opportunity, which some of us, including me, were lucky enough. His generation were, the me were men and women, of course, who they knew there was something out there. Mm. You could... You, you can say literature, or in his case, also classical music. We had a few old 78s, Beethoven and people like that, which I'd listened to at home. And um, my dad listened to, but he could never really get hold of because he hadn't been given the opportunity, the tools to understand any more about this stuff other than that it sounded nice or it was quite interesting to read, you know, a short story by Thomas Hardy or someone. Um, so... And who can say, it's merely speculation, but it may be that my dad went to a grammar school in Richmond, Surrey, um, 
so he must have been a bright enough kid. Mm. But when he got to be 15, his parents said, I'm sorry, but we've got to take you out of school. We need you to earn a wage to help us keep going, you know, and that was that was it. Mm. Um, and there must have been many thousands like him who potentially might have <clears throat> had much more opportunity in life and didn't get it. Mm. And I was that post-war generation that was lucky enough to fall into that. And so we got it. He was... He encouraged me. He pointed me in the right direction, the, the, the right local grammar school to go to, which in my case was Hampton Grammar School. Um, but then when suddenly uh, I'd done seven years there, um, suddenly I was pointing at places like Cambridge, mm. he started to get nervous. He didn't, he didn't dissuade me at all. Mm. I mean, he was probably rather, rather proud of himself. But he suddenly realised that I was moving into a social area which was far beyond his experience or comprehension and that, to put it slightly dramatically, he'd be losing me. Mm. And he, he did, really. I mean, I moved into a world quite different from the one that he always lived in and brought me up in. Mm, I see. And were you aware of it at the time, do you think? No, you? I mean, you aren't. You know, you, you live in the world you find yourself in. Oh, good. Yes, I'm allowed to go to university. And I don't have, my dad doesn't have to pay a penny because, yeah. you know, um, you don't ask any questions. You just, that's the way the world is set out for you. Now, of course, I look back and I look back at what students, probably of your generation mm -hmm. as well, have suddenly had, to, you know, are suddenly inflicted uh, uh, upon themselves. And you think, you know, poor buggers. I mean, I, I feel, I feel sorry and angry. Actually, I mean, politically, I feel very angry mm -hmm. about what's what's happening to further education in this country. Um, if we go back to to Cambridge, then, so Cambridge, you were writing on student newspapers. Is that right? I I I edited the university lit mag, literary magazine called Delta. Um, that was my main interest, you know, because it was literary. So mm. I was dealing with poetry and criticism and that and I go to Dr. Leavis's lectures and things like that. I was in effect doing an English degree, but my, <laughs> my exams are actually in French and Spanish. Yeah, I, um, I was giving myself an education in English. But because uh, my magazine Delta um, suddenly got a very sniffy review in Varsity, which was the university newspaper. And I did something I wouldn't do now, but I wrote a, a Mr. Angry letter to the paper saying, this chap doesn't know what he's talking about. Whereupon the chap resigned. Um, and the editor of the paper happened to be in the same college as mine and was a chap I knew. Um, and he said, look, I haven't got a, an arts editor anymore. You've you've got rid of him, you've savaged him and he's resigned. <laughs> so the least you owe me is to take his job. So I did. Uh, of course, that had never been part of the plan. Mm. And I suddenly discovered I really enjoyed getting a newspaper out. Um, I, I like the mechanics of it. I mean, yeah. it's utterly different nowadays with computer. But in those days, it was what was called hot metal. Mm. And you had to stand there with a guy who was putting the page into shape. And you say, no, let's drop that caption. Let's move that headline there and so forth. Mm. I suddenly discovered a great, something I knew nothing about mm. until then. I discovered a great love for that. So I thought, well, this might be a way to earn my living when I leave the university until I'm... I found a way to earn a living by being a writer. Mm. So that's how it worked out. And so when about did you, you find yourself in Bristol then after ah, Cambridge? Well, 
that, like many other things in my life, um, all comes down to women. Um, the sister of a friend of mine at my college um, had suddenly become very dear to me, mm -hmm. and she was working as an occupational therapist at Winford Hospital, which ain't there anymore, but just south of Bristol it was. Yeah. And so uh, we're talking about the early 60s, um, the very beginning of 1960, January 1960. Um, I thought I want to get a job on a newspaper and I thought, well, wouldn't it be great if I got a job on a paper in Bristol, a city I'd never visited. Uh, I'd cycled through, I was a very keen cyclist when I was a boy, I'd cycled through, but I'd never stayed in Bristol. Mm. Uh, and I mean, it's weird, looking back, again, you, the world is as you know it at the time. Mm. Now, if you were a recent graduate and wanted to work in journalism, you wouldn't have the, the, the nerve to say, yes, Bristol's where I'm going to go and work. Mm. But it felt like that at the time. And so I applied for this job in Bristol and got it and came to work for the Bristol Evening Post, which very shortly um, after that um, was merged with the Western Daily Press, the morning paper, and the bosses there said, we want a weekly arts page, would you like to edit it? Because I'd got this background at Cambridge of doing that kind of stuff. And that's where really my, my life started, because then I was, I, I was asked to work with this guy I'd met once and couldn't stand called Tom Stoppard. And the second time we met, we suddenly discovered that we got on rather well. And uh, he now introduces me as his oldest friend. Um, and I was at his 80th birthday party last week. I suspect that for most of you, Tom Stoppard will need a little introduction. Suffice to say that he is now Sir Tom, one of Britain's most successful playwrights and screenwriters. He was recently ranked by the Daily Telegraph as number 11 in their list of the 100 most powerful people in British culture. In the early 1960s, he was a contributor to a remarkable Western Daily Press arts page of which ACH Smith was editor. I asked Anthony if Bristol had a flourishing art scene in the early 60s. It was beginning, Tom, but I've been thinking about this recently because, I mean, there's so much going on here now. It's wonderful. Mm -hmm. You know, Bristol is absolutely heaving with people doing theatre and painting and dance, and it's great. I love, I love it. It wasn't like that in 1960 when mm. I came here and the arts page started in, at the end of 1960. There wasn't much happening. There were, there were the, the mainline stuff. There was the Bristol vehicle, of course. Mm. There was the Hippodrome doing mostly touring shows. Um, I can't remember there was a lot of theatre beyond that. Um, and the same would go if I started talking about other art forms. And I'd, I'd like to think... Uh, though somebody could argue against this, uh, uh, I'd like to think that we played a part in in what is now a wonderfully thriving art scene. Mm. I'm sure it would have been here anyway without us, but we were certainly in there inadvertently at the start. Um, I can't show it to you because somebody who's writing a, 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 a biography of Tom Stoppard at the moment has taken my complete arts file folder, so oh, I can't right. show it to you. But we, we brought out one entire page, and it was a broadsheet paper, so it was a big page like that. Mm. We brought out one entire page devoted solely 
to um, why is the council, the city council, so mean in supporting the arts and there's lots of good people working here and why are they all struggling and, you know, and uh, it created a big stir. Mm. Um, overnight there were committees suddenly springing up, committees of academics, committees of trade unionists saying, yes, we all ought to be doing more. And I'm not sure any of those directly led to anything, but they were the beginnings of something that 50 years later is really flowering in a, in a big way. And I'm, I'm very pleased about it. And I'd like to think that what Stoppard and I did was was helpful in in the start of all that over 50 years right and uh, something else i wanted to ask you about around that time is that you were the subject of a john borman film yeah. called newcomers yeah and actually um i managed to watch a little bit of that found a little bit of it online yeah yeah there's stuff on youtube extraordinary footage of bristol from the mm. early 60s yeah um and if I'm right, the the idea behind the film is it's you and your wife um, expecting your first child, which turns out to be children. That's right. Um, so how, how did that project come about and what was it like being involved in? It, it, it came about through the arts page. And as I've said, the arts page came about through my doing the magazine and the newspaper mm. stuff at Cambridge, you know, you know, and you look back and you see A led to B led to C, but there's no way when you're at A then you can say, right, the next thing's going to be B. Mm. You don't know what B is going to be. Mm. You just stick around and hope that B comes along and then C after it. What happened was that in the arts page, I suddenly got very gung-ho for what Arnold Wesker was trying to do at that time, not just as a playwright, mm. uh, but also he started a thing called Centre 42, this was in 1962, mm. which was, to put it rather crudely, art for the workers. It was not only workers in the audience, but come on, bloke, uh, out there, there's people among you who want to act and paint and dance mm. and write, and we're here to try and give you a chance to make yourself make your presence felt and get your stuff seen publicly you know mm. and i was as i will be today i was all for that mm. so i wrote three big pieces in my own arts page mm. saying let's hear it for Arnold westcott you know and um i wrote these pieces and then i got a phone call from this guy i'd never heard of called john borman of the bbc i'd had nothing ever to do with the bbc until then mm. uh, he read these pieces and he like me was very keen on what Wesker was preaching mm. um, that gospel and he said I want to do a program on BBC about it um, would you like to come down and talk to me so I went down and talked to him and what it was was he wanted me to front the program present the program mm. um, and it and it, but it, it, it went out live they didn't do much recording in those days. It went out live yeah. on BBC One nationwide. I, who'd never even watched television, I didn't <laughs> own a television set, uh, was presented, you know, speak to the nation for yeah. 60 minutes. Yeah. I mean, about, about Bristol. Right? Link the programme. Yeah, I mean, nice. there were lots of, Westcott himself was on, there were lots of contributors, but yeah. it was my job to say, you know, thank you very much, and now we have so-and-so, so-and-so, uh -huh. which was pretty frightening, I can tell you. <laughs> I mean, later I did a lot of telly for HTV, and mm. I learned how to do it without getting very scared, but <laughs> that first one was very frightening. Mm. And that had come about because Borman had seen the arts page in the local paper, 
Right, so now I knew John Borman, mm. and he was the blue-eyed boy of BBC documentaries at that time. Mm. Um, he broke all the rules. That's how he. That's why he became the blue-eyed boy. He wasn't making a traditional documentary. He was finding new, very adventurous ways of doing documentaries, and he wanted to do a six-part series uh, on Bristol. Simply as he loved the city. He'd mm. only recently moved here from Southampton. Uh, in fact, he grew up very near where I grew up. He grew up in Sunbury on Thames. Um, uh, he, he wanted to make a six-part series about Bristol. And he gave me another ring and he said, can, can we meet? And we talked and he said, um, would you like to write this series for me about Bristol? And of course, I was going to say, yes, naturally you would, you know. Um, and it, it came out quite differently from that. It Slowly, it moved from being a six programmes written by me mm. to six programmes with me and Alice and my wife expecting our firstborn, which turned out to be twins, mm. and in the last programme, them being delivered. Mm. In other words, we became actors rather than writers. I did have some contribution to the script, but most of the script was written by Borman. Mm. I suddenly became, if it's not a contradiction in terms, I became a documentary actor. John Borman is now an Oscar-nominated film director, famous for such works as Deliverance and Hope and Glory. In the early 1960s, he was the head of the BBC's Bristol-based documentary unit. I'll put up a link to some of the remarkable footage filmed for newcomers on the podcast Facebook page. It's certainly worth a watch. I asked Anthony what the filming process was like for the project. He was ostensibly following our lives, our everyday lives, how we lived our lives. He was he was interested, you know, but he was using us as, as two pairs of eyes to look at Bristol. What what could we find through looking at Bristol through us? I trying to earn my living by now as a freelance writer. Alison through a recently graduated student now having our first children, you know, two different angles on mm. what's it like to live in Bristol and, and basically to be young in Bristol as well. Mm. And you had cameras sort of intruding in your daily oh, life for a, quite a period. I'm really not exaggerating. I would more than once I woke up to the noise of a man setting up a camera in the bedroom where we slept. I was We'd worked hard the previous day. I was knackered and they come in, you know, they I think they had a front door key or something, I forget how. Yeah. They would come in and we would literally wake up to the sound of cameras being set up to, mm. you know, and there's one shot right at the start of the first film, actually, of us waking up. Mm. Um, uh, so it, it became, and it took best part of six months, the whole series. So it was, you know, it, it, I was brand new to television. I, I learnt about, a lot about telly. But also, it was, you know, it, it was a, a year's wages um, when I hadn't got a job. So, mm -hmm. again, it was a huge... I was very lucky in many, many ways, and that was one of them. And that, as I was saying, A leads to B leads to C, well, that led to my later doing 20 years on HTV of presenting a monthly RT programme, which would never have happened if I hadn't done that Borman work earlier for the BBC. I see. Um, and was there a... Uh, a pressure on you? Did you feel a pressure um, to move away from Bristol? Because um, I guess Tom Stoppard moved to, to London and mm. people might see that now as a 
well, maybe they don't see it quite so much now, but, uh, you know, I could see how at that time it's a thing of, oh, if you become successful or get a certain amount of status or reputation that mm. London would pull you in. Did you ever feel that? Or? I, I, I certainly felt it. It particularly when Tom moved because we had become very dear friends. He was my best man when we got married. Mm. Um, and I, I, I still to this day miss him a bit, though he's living in Dorset now, so he's not that far away. Um, I, there, were, there were two other writers we should mention, Peter Nichols, who's a real mm. Bristolian, and Charles Wood, mm -hmm. who is a wonderful writer that nobody's ever heard of. I mean, he's had plays at the National, the Royal Court, the Royal Shakespeare Company. He wrote Charge of the Light Brigade, which mm. was on telly yet again just last week. Um, he's... But he's earned a very good living and he's been a very prominent name. Mm. But everyone knows who Tom Stoppard is yeah. and a lot of people, especially in Bristol, know who Peter Nichols is. Yeah. But you say Charles Wood, who? Mm. You know, and it's a shame because he's a wonderful writer, Charles. Um, and they're all still alive. I saw mm. all of them recently. Um, one after another, they all moved to London. Uh, Tom, I think, was first to go and then... Peter went, and when I said, oh, Peter, what a shame. I mean, you're a real Bristolian. Why are you leaving? Yeah. Going to the big smoke. And Peter's excuse was, he said, I've run out of places to take my kids to on Sundays. Mm -hmm. I need a new city. Yeah, okay. And Charles, Charles never actually moved to London, but he, he was the last of the, those to go, but he moved to Oxfordshire, which is you know, more than halfway to London. Yeah. And when you ask them why, the... The answer then, as it probably would be today, was, well, you know, that's where most of the theatrical action is. Mm. That's where the actors are. That's where the agents are, the producers. And you want, you need to be somewhere near the swim so mm. they remember you and a bit of work comes your way, you know. Mm. Um, I don't accept that uh, for two reasons. One is that doing what I do and what Tom has always done you don't have to live in London. Mm. I mean, you sit wherever you're living, doing <laughs> your stuff. Yeah. And then there's a thing called the postal service, and yeah. nowadays there's a thing called email. Yeah. And it's just as easy to send your agent or your producer or whatever it is your stuff, and then they say, right, we need a meeting. Sure. There's a thing called trains or buses, mm. and you can go to London and meet them. You don't have to live in the city to do it. Mm. But you can understand there is this kind of superstition that you'll be forgotten unless you're unless quite you're close to where it's all happening. Mm. Um, there was, I mean, I've got letters I could show you from Tom saying, um, Anthony, come on, come on, you know, I've, I've got this place in, I can remember, 44 Elgin Crescent in Kensington, you know, yeah. there's, there's another bedroom, come, you know. And of course I was tempted, mm. but... I suppose what saved me, two things saved me. One was I'd fallen utterly in love with Bristol and mm. still am utterly in love with Bristol and it suits me terribly well. I like a small city, small mm. in comparison to London, of course, but Birmingham and the others. Um, uh, but secondly, I got a wife and two little daughters growing up and mm. not long after that, a, a, a son. And that anchors you in a place, you know. You, mm. It's not that easy to move. When Tom moved, he was completely free agent. He wasn't married or anything. Um, so it's not, you aren't taking too much of a risk moving. By that time, it would have been much harder for me to move. So 
but I wasn't inclined to move anyway. No, it doesn't sound like it, and it, especially speaking now when you're talking about what saved you. I mean, that's a, yeah. a certain yeah. type of language you're, you're, you're using, yeah. isn't it? So I, I suppose it's perhaps a difficult question, but what do you think it is about Bristol? I mean, as you're someone who wasn't born here, but someone who clearly loves it so much, yeah. what, what, any few things that you could pin down about it that you like so much? I'll, sure. I'll try. It is a difficult question, but I'll... I'll have a go. Um, the first thing is the size of the city. As far as I'm concerned, it's just just the right size of city. I've never done it, but you could walk across it in a day. You could start in, say, Westbury on Trim and wind up in, say, Warmly. Mm. And, you, you know, it would be take about three hours, you know. I mean, it's a feasible walk. That you could, I like the idea that <laughs> it's a city you could walk across. I mean, Plato used to say... Uh, a city is the size in which everyone knows everyone else by sight. You may not know all their names, right, yeah. but you know them all by sight. And then later, some other Greek, I forget who, maybe Aristotle, expanded it and he said a city is is that size across which a man's shout might carry. Um, well, I, I'm, I'm going to go much bigger than that. I, I think a, an ideal city is you might reasonably comfortable you walk across in a day and that's Bristol for me mm. also you know you read article 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 in the national press about situations in the cities mm -hmm. and so often Bristol isn't there because it's off that thrust mm. you look at the map and it goes you know London Birmingham Manchester mm. Liverpool Leeds over there and then you're in Glasgow and Edinburgh and Bristol's off to one side off mm. the left hand side of that you know and it seems to me, um, as a you know a, a new Bristolian, but I've been here nearly sixty <laughs> years, so I I've got some knowledge of the place now. That um, uh, Bristol's always had a very independent spirit of its own. It's got its own mm. way of looking at the world. And what I what I most of all love about Bristol, I've thought about this in the past, and my first answer really has to be. Uh, the sense of humour. I loved the Bristolian sense of humour. Very soon after I came to work in Bristol, a journalist I used to work with called Norman Walters told me a story. It, I suspect it is not true. It doesn't matter whether it's true or not. The story sums up Bristol for me. Norman says he was on a bus and he heard two blokes behind him and one bloke said to his mate, I'm going to watch the Rovers during Lent. It takes a while. It's so dry, that joke, mm. that you have to think about it before you realise yeah, yeah, what the joke yeah, actually yeah. is. And I've never... I've lived in Birmingham. Mm. I am a Londoner in origin. I've lived in other places like Cambridge. Mm. Um, I don't know any other city that has a sense of humour as dry and, mm. in the end, as funny mm. as that kind of sense of humour and I've met it many times most of all when I did a play about the docks mm. and I talked to something like 50 mostly pretty getting on you know in years getting on in years dockers and they'd all got something of that every one of them had got something of that very dry yeah slightly ironic you know sense of humour that I really associate with this city and uh, I I love it whenever I come across it, and I, I, I'm very happy to live, live amid it. Up the feeder, down the mouth, 
was Anthony's homage to the thousand-year-old history of the Bristol Docks, a play written from the assorted recollections of the old dockers he interviewed for the project. The play's first run was in 1997, and it was sensationally restaged on the docks itself in 2001. The play was a sellout and received critical acclaim in the national and local press, although Anthony writes entertainingly and self-deprecatingly about the response in his memoir. I quote, Every night, watching the show, I felt like Saint Sebastian, pierced by all the little things that were not quite right. Stephen Sondheim once watched a show of his in rehearsal and at the end said, Perfect, now make it better. It's always like that for the writer. You miss the bigger picture. But the reviews were warm. The Observer, in its 2001 annual review of British theatre, called it the single most magical moment of the year. The first I knew of this remark was, typically, when Stoppard ran me from the house he had in France. It was the second time I had made an Observer top 10 list of the year. The first had been for having my teeth knocked out by a cricket ball. The most withering comment on the show was just outside El Shed, where the audience entered. The pavement had been dug up, so there was a big sign to redirect people, with an arrow pointing towards the theatre entrance. What the sign said was, pedestrian diversion. Surely it's a bit better than that, I thought. It was 97 to start within the Theatre Royal, mm. as we used to call it, before it became called the Main House or something. Um, but then Andy Hay, who was running the Bristol Vic, decided to revive it. But this mm. time he did it on the waterfront itself, mm. the old docks warehouses. That's the one people remember yeah. because it was sensational visually. Yeah. They spent a lot of money. They took a big risk. It cost, mm. you know, the, Sarah Smith, who was the general manager, said to me that if we hadn't sold out before the opening night, which we did, mm. she said that the company might have been in real trouble. Yeah. But uh, because of its previous run, it already had a reputation. Yeah. And it did tremendously well at the box office. And it was... <sighs> It was a number of things, but for me, it was it was my homage to Bristol. And in a way, it was my answer to the question you've just asked, the mm. very difficult question, what is it about Bristol? I hope a lot of my answer is in that play. Mm. It's just thoroughly enjoying the characters and philosophies, if that's not too grand a word to mm. use, of the blokes who used to work in very dangerous, difficult and often degrading conditions mm. on the docks. But simply in order to maintain their own self-esteem, A, they had great union solidarity, mm. um, but B, they all had this shared ironic sense of humour, you know, we're all in it together. Mm. And the only way we're going to get through it is by sticking together and having a good laugh with each other. Um, that's what, and that, that was what I was trying to get hold of in that play. I see. And, and you interviewed... All these dockers. Yeah, ahead of, yeah I, I did guess. exactly what you're doing with me now. Uh, I sat with a microphone for up to two hours. Yeah. Some of them were literally two hours long. I had to change an hour-long tape, and yeah. it was on days of cassettes. You know, I was using cassettes. I was using 60-minute cassettes. And mm -hmm. uh, Dolly Gray, who became the leading docker in the play, uh, went on for two hours and probably would have gone on for more if I'd let him. Mm. Um, so I wound up with... Well, I had... It was so much. I, there was no way Andy or I could edit it in the form it was, you know, I yeah. mean, about 50 or 60 hours of men, mostly men, a few women. There mm -hmm. were women who worked on the docks, 
but it was mostly men because it was a very male workforce. Mm. Um, to edit it, we had to pay somebody to sit down and transcribe the whole lot. Oh, right. And she typed it all single space and it occupied over 100 pages of A4, single space. It was, right. But then we could edit it. I mean, once it's on paper, you can see, I want that bit and I want that bit and I'm going to lose that and I'm going to put that there. You can't do that until you've got it in front of you in, on paper. Um, and that's the way we did it. Mm. Uh, and I've never done a measure, but I, I would think that 75% of the words that the audience heard were words that had been spoken to me by dockers, i.e. what's nowadays, nowadays called verbatim theatre. Yeah, yeah. I'm not sure the term had been invented 15 years ago. Um, I had to write some stuff, and there's lots of songs and bits of history to mm. link things together, um, which I, I had to do the writing of. But it was more than that. It was an editing job of this wonderful raw material that the dockers had given me. By just, And they loved doing it, you know. I mm. mean, any man would, mm. to sit down at the age of maybe 65 and talk about what he's been working on for the last 50 years. It's not a... a chance that you often get in your life mm. so they were very happy to sit down and talk and of course we gave them free seats and they all came yes and yes. the great thing when they came was that not one of them had ever been to a theater in their lives so they didn't know how to behave in the theater so a docker on stage would yeah. say something and there'd be people in the audience saying yeah that's right it was like that when i was yeah. down there yeah you know People look at, oh, you know, we're in a theatre. It was a terrific experience to yeah. subvert the stuffy conventions of theatre. How did the idea for that come about? Was it, you, did, you know, were you commissioned to write it? Or? Yes, but it, it, like so many good things, it began with an accident. Mm. In 1995, or it may have been six, one of those two years, there was a thing on called Festival of the Sea. Yeah. And we heard, I'd already done a bit of work for the Brasovic, not much, but a little bit, and I knew Andy Hay. Um, we heard that there was going to be some kind of music theatre element in it. And Andy used to chew glass in his anger at how little use the city council made of this gem in its heart called mm. the Bristol Vic. Mm. There was very, there was little financial support and even less moral support, you know. Mm. And I said to Andy, what a shame that they haven't invited the Bristol Vic to have a direct contribution to the Festival of the Sea. You mm. could have done some show. And he said, yeah, he said, and, and then we were given the name of a guy, I can't remember his name now, and it's best if I don't because I don't think very well of him. Um, who was in charge of the music and theatre element in this festival. Mm. And we were invited to go and talk to him. So Andy and I walked down and talked to him. Um, and ironically, the office building he was working in was the site of the old, what the dockers called the pen, mm. where they were picked up in the morning for work. I mean, it was the hub of their own working life. But by this time, it had become something else. It's still there. It's the last brick building opposite the Arnolfini before you cross oh, the right. uh, swing bridge. Okay. It was known as the Pen in the old days. Um, we went to see him and he was a banker wearing a stripy shirt and um, 
when we said, you've got music in it? And um, he said, oh, yes, yes, we, we're going to have some music. And we said, oh, who, who's in charge of it? Have you got a musical director? He said, oh, oh, my wife's doing that. She's very fond of music. And we began to think, I won't tell you what we began to think, yeah, because yeah. I don't know who's listening to this podcast, but we didn't think well of his response. Um, and he got some not very promising theatre outfit who were going to do some kind of high jinks. And as we walked back from him, it was only a three-minute walk from that place to Andy's office in the Bristol Old Vic, mm. and he literally stopped and punched a brick wall, mm. and he had blood on his knuckles. He mm. was so frustrated. And then he said the magic words. He said, we'll do it ourselves. And he, he commissioned me mm. then to go out and do what I did, which was go and talk to lots of old dockers. And they're easy to find because mm. you talk to Fred and Fred says, so have you talked to Joe and Bill? Yeah. And he gives you a contact for them and you talk to Joe and Bill and so you can go on forever. Mm. And a few old sailors as well and one or two captains of ships, but mostly dockers. Um, and you just build until you get to the point where you say, well, there's probably a lot more out there, but we can't handle any more. We've got mm. to stop at this point and get a show together. Mm. And so we did. Thanks to ACH Smith for talking with me this week. And you can hear part two of the podcast next week. I've put up a link on the Facebook page to the newcomers videos that I mentioned earlier in the podcast. There really is some great footage of Bristol in the early 1960s there. Thanks a lot to Robert Vasey, who uploaded the videos on his website in the first place. If you've been enjoying the Bristol History Podcasts, then you can support us by subscribing, writing a positive review on iTunes, or giving a four or five star rating. And if you have any ideas for future episodes of the podcast, you can send me an email at bristolhistorypodcast at gmail.com.